Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Lieutenant General Sir Graham Lamb, a retired British Army officer with 38 years experience and a former commander of the Field Army. Currently, he is spending a semester at Yale as a Jackson Institute Senior Fellow, teaching the Middle East and Central Asia module of its Gateway to Global Affairs course. In 2009, Lamb stepped down as commander of the field army and returned to Afghanistan at the request of General David Petraeus and General Stanley McChrystal of the U.S. Army to play a key role in the counterinsurgency efforts there, attempting to reproduce the success in Iraq by persuading Afghan insurgents to abandon their weapons. He remains the Colonel Commandant of the Special Air Services, is a trustee of the charity Walking with the Wounded, and continues to undertake work for both the UK and US governments. Today we talk with Lamb about his military experience and how it translates to the classroom. Welcome. Hey, thanks, Lamb. Real pleasure to be here. Let's begin with your time in Iraq. What was your role there, and why do you think you were so successful? I think sort of I was so successful. I, I sense that 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 uh, the contribution was widespread. Mm -hmm. um, in many ways, I look at uh, General David, who's now moved on to be the director of the CIA. Mm -hmm. uh, Ambassador Crocker, absolute star. You know, in many ways, a sort of man of the match for the State Department. So there's a whole range of people. John Allen, who's now out in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. who's out west uh, in uh, and really in many ways doing the awakening long before, in fact, people were we're talking about this as a sort of record, as, as a step change. I'd been in Iraq obviously before. I'd done the first war with, uh, that's why I first met Stan McChrystal. Okay. The, uh, which was, you know, and, and, and I knew of Stan before. He came in with JSOC and uh, a great general um, uh, that was leading at that time. Um, but he was the fastest, sharpest staff officer I'd ever come across. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows him as a sort of warrior, sort of one meal a day. He doesn't, he eats a lot of stuff in between time. Yeah, it's, but it's just like grazing. The, um, but uh, so I first met at that time when we went, went into Iraq in uh, in 1990, and then went back again. Obviously, in 2003, was there for most of 2003, and then went back again as the deputy to General Casey, mm -hmm. and then followed by General Petraeus in uh, in, in in 2006. Uh, I was the deputy to to the to the uh, to the American general that was leading, um, and that for a Brit was a real privileged position. Mm -hmm. You know, these are great great men, great. Um, great responsibilities, uh, but but as a Brit, you are the Brit. You're not an American, so you're you're the deputy, and you do a lot of stuff. Um, but but if you try and try and be an American, then I'm making a big error because you know the idea that we're just separated by a common language is complete nonsense. You mm -hmm. know we're culturally quite different, sure. and how we do business is different. But one contributes in a way to help the effort, and then specifically on some tasks. Of which one of those tasks that I was given was to uh, take forward where. Uh, Ambassador Khalisad, who was already there, was looking and exploring opportunities because our sense was the time was right for, um, for being able to break across into and talk to the other side. And how did you do that? How did you manage that? Um, I'm a Brit. Yes, you do seem pretty affable, <laughs> yes. If, if you've, Surprisingly uh, so, if, actually. If you've lost the empire, it's quite easy uh -huh. to understand how you've got to, you've got to talk to other people. The, um, uh, there's a very dull German uh, who is uh, who wrote on war called Clausewitz. Um, uh, eight books, and then most of them are unintelligible. I don't speak German, but mm -hmm. um, he he had some fantastic insights way back time. Uh, but he, he's his one of his well-known quotes is, you know, war is an extension of politics. 
Um, uh, my sense has always been that he just didn't finish the sentence. Mm -hmm. Because it should be, if war is an extension of politics, to politics it must return. So we're in the military, you know, where often people look at us as solving, you know, we're, we're big problem solvers. The, all that, always like that Irish. I saw Marty Dempsey the other day, General Dempsey, who's just doing this exchange with, uh, with uh, General Rodiano, again, two great Americans, you know, and that Irish comment, you know, we have a problem for every solution, you know, sort mm -hmm. of approach. The, um, but, but in many ways, um, you know, this presented an opportunity for us to, to, to just look at uh, where um, the insurgency had got to. Um, and for us to be able to go out and just see whether there was an opportunity of, of, of exploring a chance to uh, engage with the other side. Because if war is an extension of politics, and to politics it must return, then you must at some point in time talk to the opposition. You have to, you know. There's individuals out there who, as we, you know, the language we use is reconcilable and irreconcilable. The vast majority of people are all reconcilable, even though they may be fighting you. Mm -hmm. They are, you've got to understand their grievance. You know, the, the whys of warfare, the hows of warfare, of these counterinsurgency, these savage wars of peace, you know, are really important to understand. And if you don't go there, then the answer is if you just see this as just being a bloody match between winning and losing, you know, the Verdun mm -hmm. will bleed the bones white. You know, a million Germans and French died there. And it was just about the maths of, I have more than him, I will win. Mm -hmm. One's got to be smarter than that. So it was really more more diplomacy, perhaps, than force. No, again, no? you know, I'm, a, I'm an old hard-boiled <laughs> soldier. I, you never want, you know, I'm not going to die of a heart attack. There's nothing to stop. You uh -huh. know? So, um, yeah, this this is a hard, pretty brutal business. Mm -hmm. um, uh, on the one hand, people like uh, the, the work that that Stan was doing, absolutely critical to the outturn. Um, in many ways, that there are people there who sit on the outer limits. It's interesting, I was at a meeting the other day, or was a gathering the other day in London looking at the Arab Spring and talking about Egypt. Um, uh, some very clever people, academia, uh, people from the region, um, e extraordinarily well informed, but all from the moderate middle space. Uh, talking about the street in a way that I sense they wouldn't understand. Mm -hmm. You've got to go to the outer limits and then a little bit further. You've got to spend some time in Hobbes's world and understand what motivates, what drives, and doesn't. Zakawi, you know, the, um, that worthless individual that we, uh, we killed in Iraq. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you obey or we slaughter. That's not a point of negotiation. There's no dialogue that can be established there. You either incarcerate him, you drive him away, or you kill him. Mm -hmm. So there are people out there, but you do need to understand how they operate. And that little small group out there, you need to buffer onto a group that are supporting them, but actually in many ways are reconcilable. You've just got to find the route. Mm -hmm. How do you find that route? How do you find what, what well, motivates some, someone, well, what, especially since the cultures are opposite ends? Oh, oh hugely so. And I, th I think, you know, again, we, we see language as being the single point barrier. Actually, mm -hmm. in fact, you know, people talk about cultural awareness, you know, language skills. In my, my view is you know, what one lo is looking for is cultural understanding. So for instance, you know, if we were, say you were in fact, let's say, a, uh, you know, uh, an insurgent. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the first thing I have to recognize in many ways is, you know, I have to do some research and understand who you are, where you're coming from. Like, actually, I'm really interested in your body language. I'm really interested in the tone of your voice, your eye contact. All these things are really important because they tell me. So if I've got an agenda which merely says, these are the three points we need to discuss, and you walk into the room 
and I'm not paying attention, or you walk into the cave, or you walk into the piece of desert, or we join up at some dark house in some dark place in the middle of nowhere, you know, and everybody's armed to the teeth, and I'm not paying attention, and I merely start with point number one, and the whole thing goes badly, I shouldn't be surprised. Because what I should have noticed is you walked in with an angry look, tense, forward-leaning, and the first question I need to ask is, why are you so pissed off? Mm -hmm. And then he turns around and says, or you turn around and say, you killed my son two days ago. So I could have started with point number and gone nowhere because I had not first addressed the problem. So there's an understanding you've got to get to. You've got to sort of, but it's not about negotiation. It's about actually just establishing a connection, mm -hmm. whether it's through a third party to start with or whether it's one-to-one, -one, which is where you get to. Um, and, uh, and you need to then establish just a dialogue mm -hmm. to begin to break down the misunderstandings, which are legion between both sides. Mm -hmm. See this as a genuine about an outcome. So the outcome is, is therefore, in fact, not that I've got more troops than you have. I've got 168,000 Americans and Brits and coalition forces, mm -hmm. and you've only got a few sort of fellas out there. And that's irrelevant. The answer is we're absolutely on a level playing mm -hmm. field. But it strikes me as this, what you're describing is a, a new way to do military, um, whereas historically it's pretty much oh um, no no we did this years ago i mean the, I mean, let me look you know, i'm a brit like I said. <laughs> <laughs> so so you know the if you, if you look at you know the great game actually the <coughs> russians refer to it and that's the interestingly the the um uh the title of the of the of this this work we're doing here at the jackson institute mm -hmm. yeah which is the tournament of shadows right yeah but but the tournament of shadows and, and this sort of you know we had collectively as soldiers sailors airmen and marines been doing this for a for a millennium, mm -hmm. yeah, and, and then some. Um, what what is what we tend to look back to is the near the near past future, mm -hmm. the near past, which is um, the Cold War, the Second World War, uh, of which these were great sort of monolithic masses of right. tank armies and, yes. and huge air force, LeMay, Bomber Harris, you know, yes. sort of fleets that just that's what just, I think of when it, I think of exactly, war. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Oh, oh and, and the answer is, you know, the first Gulf War, there was a belt there of hardware hammering around the sort of, you know, mm -hmm. the uh, um, going into Kuwait and the like there. So, so it's not to dis discard that, but what we have is we've almost come back, almost done full circle, you know, back to the future type, where we find that the threats we face today, some of the sort of complexities of the environments we find ourselves in, you know, it's, it's you're, in, you're, you're dropped into the mass of people. Mm -hmm. and, and as soon as you bring people into the problem, you take away all the sort of what I call the simplicity, the choreography of war. Of between two massed armies, you know, cursed. There's no civilians. It's just an open flat space, two tank armies. Mm -hmm. It's just about maneuver and about, in fact, those advantages you gain. In these, you know, sort of savage wars of peace, uh, you've just got a belt load of people that are that you need to understand. It's people back home. It's political circuits. People, you know, the authority which we, okay. we refer to, and then of course actually people in the battle space. Okay, let's. Uh, based on your success in Iraq, you were asked to help out in Afghanistan. Did you employ the same tactics in Afghanistan, or did you need to modify your approach? Oh, definitely modify. The answer is you take merely. Oh, this worked here, or sort of worked, and and mm -hmm. you know, it's a bit like I think it was a Chinese. One of the Chinese premiers came to to France and was asked the question, "What do you think of the French Revolution?" He said, "It's too early to tell." <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, so the truth is that. But I think it's um, uh, the awakening, the surge, and all those activities in 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 in, uh, in Iraq. You know, the Petraeuses, the Stammer Crystals, uh, Brian Crockers, and all that. The John Allens. You know, the uh, you know that was a that was a point in time where circumstances. And then, you know, Prime Minister Maliki, 
um, Wafat Rabai, who's the national security advisor, the sort of what are called the understanding from people like pre uh, President Talibani, from the Grand Ayatollah Sistani, all these, all these people were in the right place in the right time to create something that worked there. Uh, when Stan um, ambushed me, probably can't think of it, but it's probably about mm -hmm. the right term, you know, I, and I get an ambush, yeah? You know, at the end of the day, you know, it normally means you're absolutely done for, you know? You, <laughs> when, when you hear the spoon come off the grenade, yeah. you know, that oh in fact, it's just about to go all bad. Um, when Stan ambushed me, he said, here's the Lambo. I'm, I'm retired. I'm already in, in, in a phase of retirement. He said, Lambo, can you come out? And I need you to come out to, to, uh, to Afghanistan. I said, Stan. He's, oh, by the way, he's got Annie there, his wife, who's a real star. And uh, he says, you know, I need you to come out to Afghanistan. And I said, right. You know, I mean, it didn't take me any time to, in fact, figure out that I had to do it. Mm -hmm. Stan's an old friend. You know, we, we establish in the military extraordinary friendships. I would know, imagine um, so. Uh, there's a great quote, and I, I can't remember, but it ends with basic line says you know, that these friendships forged in the circumstances we find ourselves, you know, are simply beyond price. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so when Stan turns around and says, listen, Graham, I need you, he hasn't thought about it lightly. He understands exactly what the implications are. You know, I've done 38 years of hard charging, you know, just a lot of separation. You know, I'm now looking for a sort of, you know, like sort of Whistler's mother, you know, sure. rocking chair and just sitting there and so sort of discipline. <laughs> yep. um, and uh, but he knew exactly, but he needed to ask me, and so therefore that was sufficiency. It's you know loyalty, trust, and these you know, these sort of uh, relationships we have are, 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 are quite special. So um, so for me, it was just a case of turning around to my wife and saying, "Hey, Mel." Uh, here's the good news. The, yeah, the bad I bet news. you love and, that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but but actually, again, I mean, the girls understand really well. So I said, look, I said, Stan's, Stan, needs, I, Stan has asked me to do this. Yeah, um, Dave Petraeus is is in the loop. I said, you know, and she gave it a no brainer. Mm -hmm. So I, I said, I gave him a calendar. Year, went out for a month. I said, I, I went out there. <clears throat> I said, I need to look to see whether, in fact, that because I always go out, as you would expect, drawing upon. You know, it, it's it's interesting with the course we're doing at, at the institute. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I mean, some really bright people. But, but, but the message we're saying is, say, look, it's not what to think, it's how to think. You know, you, ha you, it's all about this, you know, it's, you, need to, you need to see beyond the simple sort of what I call structure in front of you. You have to go deeper than that. So the approach to these is one turns up with a blank piece of paper. You turn around and say, can it be done? Rather than saying, you've got all your instincts, you've got your manuscripts from the past, you've got your sort of uh, experiences that, that all come to play. But I said, I go out, I give them a calendar month, so I literally, I, I walked out of the, my office on the, I think about the 20th of July, 2009, uh, and was landing in Kabul on the 23rd of August, a month later, leaving an absolute nightmare <laughs> of, a, of a maelstrom back at home mm -hmm. um, and uh, un unfinished stuff, you know, trying to do a transition from a, a a, a really comfortable life where things are all done for you in the military, you know, from your taxes to your sort of da-da-da-da, to suddenly, in fact, trying to be a sort of independent loon out there. Um, read his report, Stan's report on the way in, um, but, uh, but said I'd give him then a calendar month to see whether there was possibility for something mm -hmm. here in Afghanistan. Now, I'd been to Afghanistan before, obviously. I'd, 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 uh, we'd, we'd sort of been in the back in the, in the old days, and then I'd gone in in 2001 when we knocked off the Taliban, been there for the early part of 2002. I remember meeting Stan out there again when he was working for, I think, General McNeil, um, briefly before I then headed off towards refocused down onto, onto Iraq, because that's the way we were going. And then I dropped in and out in between time, you know. So, so I knew Afghanistan 
uh, moderately well from 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 that from that that period of time. But I needed to get out, spend about a month just looking at it and seeing whether there was ground here where we were at. I think the report, as I read on the aircraft coming up, was, um, you know, it was a serious piece of work. It was, you know, the stand said, you know, the situation is very serious. Things were not good, and I needed to therefore see what was possible. I went out, looked around, came back, and then sat down with stand. Used PowerPoint. I really hate PowerPoint. You know, I'm a Brit. You know, Americans love PowerPoint. You know, and mm -hmm. my deck was about ten slides rather than eight hundred, and uh, reckoned that there was ground for us to be able to do something not the same, mm -hmm. different arrangement. In many ways, we had in Iraq uh, on the two outer limits of the problem we were facing. You had because it was a sectarian. That was the sort of chemistry that was creating this sort of what I call this momentum of chaos. Mm -hmm. On one hand, you had the insurgents on the one side, Sunni-based Al-Qaeda and that, on, and then you had the Shia militias on the other. Um, uh, and it was, it was about trying to work out how to, how to moderate that space in the middle and separate the, those who were irreconcilable to a future that, in fact, was of their choice. In Afghanistan, as I went around, the, the, I came across a great deal of intimidation. Uh, it wasn't self-evident, perceived and real intimidation. And of course, Afghanistan is a survival society. If you live in a survival society, you work only on the probabilities of outcome. Mm -hmm. So if you're a family, if you're an individual, if you're a clan, if you're a tribe, then the probability of outcome, if it says the Taliban return, then you do not go with a white guy. Right. Yeah, so you have to change that dynamic, and that's what the last two years in many ways have been about, changing that level of intimidation around the country. And how's and it I, going? Well, I, I, you, know, we, you know, it's hard charging. Afghanistan, we, the Brits would know this. We've been there three times and got our asses kicked. The um, uh, uh, on each occasion, I think that that you know it's e it's very easy to take a binary approach on this sort of stuff. I say that that the, um, the 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 path that was the trend that was occurring in two thousand and one has absolutely been corrected mm -hmm. and checked. Uh, I think Stan readjusted the campaign. Um, you know, President Obama you know delivered twenty two thousand Marines in February of that year. He then delivered another thirty thousand in the sort of what I call on the call of the sort of work called to increase the numbers, uh, made a significant difference down in Helmand province, you know, where we then got the ratios right. General Petraeus comes in, you know, the absolute sort of architect of delivery. And uh, um, somebody asked me the other day and said, well, you know, it, it, actually I saw Big John Mulholland, great general, and, at, uh, at the, at the uh, change of responsibility um, uh, ceremony between Audiano and, and General Dempsey the other day. And, uh, and, um, and Big John sort of said, hey, hey Lambo, he said, you know, he said, How's it going? I you know, said, you know, pity we're not making, you know, we didn't, we, it didn't, seem, didn't work out in Afghanistan. I said, it's too early to tell, John. You know, it's a different timeline in Afghanistan. Things are very much on a slower burn. But I sense the big moving parts have moved. Mm -hmm. The problem is that the, the, the outer limits in Afghanistan, from my perspective, you know, and again, this is just, just Graham Lamb speaking in the, in the, way of, of the way I saw it, was on the one hand, you had the those that were fighting us, Taliban and the associated tribes and, and the like, and, 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 uh, and Al-Qaeda, et cetera, um, and on, um, on, on one flank. But on the other side, actually you had, oh, and, and it was interesting. When I went around in that first month and talked to the Afghans, they, um, they didn't talk about the enemy. Mm -hmm. They didn't talk about you know, the, sort of the Taliban as some sort of untermensch, some sort of subhuman class. And there were people there that did not like them at all. In 2001, I remember going up to Bamiyan and one of the old Hazara elders, and they'd been very badly treated by the Taliban. It's where the three Buddhas were, they'd been destroyed and all mm -hmm. the rest, yeah. And I remember sort of giving me this massive great bear hug and saying, thank you for giving us back our country. You know, they had no love at all for the Taliban, but 
but the general word, the language they used here, they talked about these people that were fighting us as upset brothers. Mm -hmm. So one of their own, upset. Now, pretty upset, right. but, but, but this is Afghanistan, and as Winston Churchill wrote very eloquently in 1897, I think, uh, in his dispatch, incomprehensible to the, to the Western mind in many ways. So, so they're difficult to understand this, but, but, but these upset brothers. The, the grouping on the other side um, were the communities, because actually Afghanistan is made up of all these quite separated parts. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there hasn't been the sort of order as we would understand it from central government in place. It's not the way things were done. You know, Kabul was only a point of arbitration. And so you had this sort of balance of power relationship between the shires out there in the valleys and all the rest here. You know, the 1940s, 1930s, when people talk about the golden age, you know, w was never safe, it was stable. Mm -hmm. And you had this balance of, balance of power sitting out there. But, but on this side, you had these indifferent communities. Um, they were indifferent to us, they were indifferent to the government, they were indifferent to the lack of progress. And the interesting thing was one needed to deal with that first before you could really start to move this view of the Afghan because they're proud. They, you know, it's almost they have this sort of set of, this is what my father did against the Russians. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, there's a sort of, this is how I should respond. Anyway, so I think, you know, that was the, the, the view of, of looking at, but the outcome was I, I turned around and said, yeah, I, I think that there's something here. We need to set up the structure. It's a slow burn program. It'll take a lot longer than it did in, in, in Iraq. And of course, a lot of people therefore turn around and say, because the awakening from when it was first seen occurred quickly, reasonably quickly, relatively quickly, within a calendar year, you saw the change, shift change. You know, all the work that John Allen, Jim Mattis did, in effect, out west, and great US Marines, in effect, then was brought into fruition, in effect, in that following year, you know, the, uh, in many ways. In, in Afghanistan, you know, my view is, you know, it's, it's, it's three or four years, but the structures are there. The High Council is there, who are made up of Afghans, who are known and respected, who don't, you know, they're not compliant to us, the coalition. And so therefore they have a view into the government and into the actions of, and they can talk to communities that we, you know, I'm a white guy, mm -hmm. you know, I can go and talk to them, but actually, you know, I can't connect to them. Right. And so it's a different approach of how you do this. It just means everything goes a little bit slower. Okay, let's talk about um, your time now in the classroom and how you're bringing your military experience and transitioning it into the classroom. Um, uh, let's actually start with, as someone who's led troops into battle, what do you think it takes to be an effective leader? Because obviously the students here are hoping to one day go out into the world and be leaders. A wicked sense of humor. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think that helps, of course. No, I, I, think, I think one of, one of, one of life's great character qualities is humility. Mm -hmm. um, I think that a reflective and thoughtful mind, I think, you know, Often, you know, that rather nice fact, both my daughters have tattooed on their, on, on the, on their feet, uh, fortune favors the brave. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's That's a, a favorite uh, yeah. uh, but, term of mine as well. But interestingly, there's a, there's a great book on uh, um, uh, a German general in the Second World War, a fellow called Kurt Meyer. Um, he was an SS divisional commander, so his, his, his political affiliations were absolutely on the wrong side of, of, of anything I would recognize. Um, and, and in that, one, one could hold no cred. But, as a combat commander, as a combat leader, the answer is he was, you know, Panzer Meyer was, was one of the small group of people that were exemplary. His chief of staff wrote, and it's in a book, and, and it just disappears in a line, yeah, but it said, of Kurt Meyer, fortune favored the 
incompetent. Mm. Yeah, and so competency, and that's why uh, these great universities, you know, Yale, you know, Oxford, Cambridge, back in UK, Stanford, Princeton, Harvard, you know, here in the United States, but Yale sits absolutely in that spot that turns around and says, this is about young men and women being given extraordinary competencies. You know, I look at the class I've got, you know, and there's, there's I mean, you know, I'm, I'm the dumbest guy in the room by some considerable margin. You know, these are really smart people from across the globe, yeah, whole lot of great Americans here and there, um, but, 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 but really, really smart. Um, they have the ability, therefore, to pick up the book, you know, but if, if the, the writ of the word here is all they learn, they're doomed. It's the interpretation, the reflection, their own experiences, and how they look. We, yesterday's period was, was one where we looked at, and, and they, I'd given them some reading, and uh, of which they could have, I'm sure, you almost regurgitated word for word, line by line, in effect, the structure which they'd been presented with. I said, but that's not, you know, what did you think about it? Mm-hmm. What, you know, what came out of this? Because that's where they need to go to. And they're clever enough to go there. They just are slightly constrained at the moment in many ways by the sort of, you know, the, Im- the importance of being able to recite, to have the sort of classical academic. Mm-hmm. Now, you need that baseline, which I don't have. Experience has given me some insights. And then you need to apply it to, in fact, your ability to be able to then absolutely project yourself into a space of it's how you think mm-hmm. rather than what you think about these things. Because, you know, it doesn't matter if it's the Middle East, whether it's the United States of America, South America, Asia, whatever, you know, they're just complicated, really complicated. Right. And if there's just one thing um, you'd like students to take from your class, what would it be? Um, I, I finished yesterday with a, with a quote from um, uh, um, the father of sort of Greek tragedy, mm-hmm. which talks about, you know, once an eagle, you know, fallen. And it finishes, you know, as he looks towards the shaft that is basically done for him and the feathers that are at the end of it. By our own hands are we smitten. So there's a danger that you look across at issues that are occurring and one sees them as, as of others making. Whereas quite often our and how we operate, you know, there's nothing wrong with intervention. You know, then there's not some sort of, you know, that, that what we do. But how we then intervene, mm-hmm. our relationship with sovereign nations, with ancient civilizations. You know, when I was in Iraq, you know, I used to talk, you say, you know, you know here am I at Ur, you know, birthplace of Abraham. You know, they, they, were, they were firing ceramics, I'm a Scot, when we were painting ourselves, you know, with woad. And yet somehow we, we, we see this as uncivilized. You know, nothing could be further from the truth. It's like the Far East, exactly the same. So, so there's a real danger as we go in with a sort of a, a, a near view of just hard, um, you, know, you, know, you know, United States, the superpower of the day, the, um, you know, you know, powerful in every sense, and, uh, um, but, but their approach of saying, this is, you know, this is how you should now, because we've got a near perfect life, we've got a great sort of, you know, this is the system we work by, you should now adopt ours, reflect on us, you say, actually, what arrogance. Mm-hmm. We did exactly the same as, as empire. Yeah? The trick is in many ways to go in there with a huge dose of humility uh, and see how one can help individuals. In this case, there is a right to intervene. You know, the, I think the, you know, I was placed like Rwanda. I was in the Balkans, right? So I understand why the United Nations, for instance, in 2005, made the finding they did. You know, the intervention in Libya, 
You know, I remember intervening in Macedonia. We stopped the third Balkan war. Mm -hmm. That's a good intervention. So the idea that intervention is wrong or it's somehow sort of not good, we save probably tens of thousands of lives by that, and no one, well, not many people got shot in that process. Okay. Uh, so um, it's this idea that I think that, you know, by our own hands we are smitten. So, so you have to be really careful as you go walking into this ground here that quite often our own actions or our own attitudes or our own approach or our own ability, inability to look from the other side of the hill quite often will give us, in fact, make us, have us make analysis and or decisions which are not conducive to success. Mm, very good advice. My final question, as we approach the 10th anniversary of September 11th, as a man who has spent time in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, how safe do you think we are in this part of the world? Um, I know we're on a high terrorist alert um, today, according to the news. Um, do you think we have concern to worry? Oh, I think I think it would be it would be foolish to somehow think that that um, uh, our interventions have, have somehow uh, stopped the tide of of, of evil. Mm -hmm. um, you know the, the the concern I have to you know as a as an old soldier now in effect you know the um, as I look to the future um, is is the concern that I have is that you have now um, the tools of industrial violence which were those only afforded to the sovereign state and certain armed forces mm -hmm. now within the grasp of a few. Um, and that is not only weapons of mass destruction, which are the well-known and well-known, mm -hmm. but it's weapons of mass disorder, power, electricity, and these things. Yeah. Um, uh, with that, you have this enormous force for great good or force for imminent, for, 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 great, for great evil, which is, which is the very medium we're talking here, which mm -hmm. is information media, you know, the, the ability to bring assemblages of people. Because quite often, you know, what is interesting when you, when, when I came across the insurgents I was talking with um, uh, across cups of tea in the middle of nowhere in, in Iraq um, was the level of misunderstanding between the two. And what was, what was fascinating was how misinformed they were about intent and, and, and what we were and what we were doing. Mm -hmm. um, now that wasn't because of happen chance. It was because a few people had manipulated an event or two had taken things into a context and presented them in a never-ending fashion, had used some examples of how we were operating, um, uh, events occurring, and were able to manipulate and then to motivate and then to mobilize people through a corrupted message in order to do great evil. Mm -hmm. um, when one sat down and talked through these things, and then quite often you came to this position at the end where, in fact, there was a, the dialogue allowed you to then go into confidence-building measures and change. So, so I think that, that the idea that the world is any safer would be a misnomer. The idea that by doing nothing, the world would be safer is a complete nonsense. I sense that you know, we, we, this, is, this is a hard endeavor. It is a, it is a conflict without end. And, and people may not like that, but that's just the harsh reality. Mm -hmm. Of, of the 15-minute opportunity that somebody can have to be somebody 
without any sense of the, um, of the responsibility of what he or she is about to do. You know, the two, twin two, the two towers, you know, are graphic sort of images, <coughs> the jumpers, all that side of, of, of something. You just think, you know, how could this have happened? Um, but if we somehow think that, that you can, you know, chasing down, incarcerating, or killing an individual is, is within the grounds of, of, you know, moving and changing movements and ideas, mm -hmm. these are really complicated. These are things which require a huge investment across all the departments of state against, in fact, what I call from academia through to presidents, through to the military, of how we then look at ourselves and look to the future. It's interesting, I, in part of this work I was doing with, with the Jackson Institute, you know, I went back and uh, you know, reread, you know, for instance, Woodrow Wilson's 14 points mm -hmm. back in 1920. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, it's, it's fascinating how people looked at this, these great endeavors, the approach of how we should as nation states, rather than individuals, you know, make a change and make a difference, not on our terms, but on these collective terms. So I think that uh, you know, the sad news is that the world um, remains a dangerous place. This is a troubled century, um, but so has every other one been. And, uh, and so therefore you need people that are from both sides. You, you know, long may, you know, great humanitarians, long may good people like you know, all that, that, that are out there that, that want to bring a better life and a better peace, you know, but, but don't somehow think that um, just by being good that in fact evil will somehow just take a, take a knee. It won't. And therefore you need to have people who will bring violence to those who will bring you harm okay. uh, in this world. Very good. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Not at all. My pleasure. For more information about Lieutenant General Sir Graham Lamb, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale. Thank you very much. Good. My that pleasure. That was great.